If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Past scientists were not reaching for the same goals that we are reaching for, only not getting as close as we've come, but that they really had no idea of the kind of thing that can be learned about the world. That was Steven Weinberg discussing the history of science. I think his appeal to people was, was the fact that he continually managed to get things slightly wrong. And that was David Suchet talking about St Peter. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of April 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The ways in which we've attempted to make sense of the world around us through scientific methods such as physics and astronomy have changed dramatically over the past 2,000 years. But what factors have contributed to particularly rapid periods of scientific development? And which individuals do we owe the most for such progress? These questions are at the heart of Nobel laureate Stephen Weinberg's latest book, To Explain the World, The Discovery of Modern Science. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, caught up with him to find out more and started by asking Stephen what inspired him to write this new book. I had been uh, teaching a course in uh, the history of physics and astronomy here at the University of Texas. It was an undergraduate course for students who didn't already know a lot about history or physics or astronomy. And um, I had volunteered to teach it because I thought I wanted to learn more about it, which is sort of typical for an academic. That's the way you learn things is you volunteer to teach a course. Um, As I taught the course, I became aware that things in the past were quite different from from what I had thought, that uh, past scientists were not reach, reaching for the same goals that we were reaching, that we are reaching for, only not getting as close as we've come, but that they really had no idea of the kind of thing that can be learned about the world and the way to learn it. And I began to see the history of uh, science, not as the accumulation of facts and theories about this and that, but as the learning of a a way of interacting with nature that leads to reliable knowledge. Um, It surprised me how far the great uh, natural scientists of the past were from anything like our present conception of science. 
I mean, how much of a challenge was it condensing thousands of years of history into 400 pages? Well, of course, I had to uh, condense a great deal. The um, uh, And it was very important to avoid having um, the book sound like a laundry list of famous scientists of the past. You know, first there was Euclid, and then there was Hero, and then there was Archimedes, and then there was... Uh, Ptolemy and so on, um, breaking it up, giving some historical background, giving some scientific background, explaining what was really going on with the work they were doing. Um, I think it turned out all right. Uh, that is, it isn't just a dry list of names and accomplishments, but um, it was it was important to keep it from being that. So starting back at the very start of this story, I suppose, how much do we owe the ancient Greeks? I think the, uh, the, sci- the people who made the scientific revolution in the um, 17th and 18th centuries owed a tremendous amount to, the, I should say the 16th and 17th centuries, made, owed a tremendous amount to them, um, in particular to the Greeks of the Hellenistic and Roman periods, Uh, For example, uh, Copernicus did not base his theory about the Earth going around the sun on his own observations or observations made by his contemporaries in Europe. He based it on the earlier work of the Greeks, in particular Claudius Ptolemy, who lived about 150 AD, and um, he saw that the things that were ugly about Ptolemy's theory Uh, could be rectified and made understandable and not artificial uh, by just changing the point of view from a stationary Earth to a stationary Sun with the Earth going around it. The peculiarities of Ptolemy's theory uh, were simply due to the fact that we were observing the solar system from a moving platform, the Earth. But But uh, Copernicus made no significant observations of his own. He was relying completely on what Ptolemy had already done. Uh, There are many examples like that. But, of course, today, in teaching courses in physics, uh, although we go back to Newton, we explain uh, the mechanics of of motion and gravity of uh, the ordinary macroscopic scale in terms of Newton's theory, we don't go back to the Greeks. Uh, They are part of our heritage, but their value was mostly in um, making the scientific revolution of the uh, 16th and 17th centuries possible. You touched there on the idea of ugly versus beautiful theories. What do you mean by that? Oh, that's a question that I've struggled with um, because, you know, we don't think of our theories as expressions of aesthetic sentiment. We can say a, beautiful, a, a poem is beautiful by, without asking whether it's true. We're concerned ultimately with truth and not beauty. But it's still true that the, <laughs> it's still true that the kind of theories that we're searching for are explain the world in a way that is beautiful, because if it isn't, then the hell with them. Um, I mean, if you explained the solar system by simply listing uh, the uh, 
where every planet would be at every moment in the foreseeable future, you wouldn't have a very beautiful theory. I understand. Okay, yeah. Uh, the So we're looking for beauty, but we don't take it as a validation of our theories that they're beautiful. Um, my own view, I mean, but that leaves open a big question. Why does our sense of beauty uh, tend to lead towards success? I mean, there are a great many theories, including that of Copernicus, that are, were successful because Copernicus was looking for a beauty that he didn't find in Ptolemy's theory. Uh, 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 he was looking for a theory that didn't involve artificialities, like the artificiality that the epicycle of Mercury and Venus go around the Earth in precisely the same length of time that the sun goes around the Earth, the year. He was looking for a theory that didn't have artificial features like that. So why did it work? Why was Copernicus right? Uh, I don't know, but I have a feeling that it's because we've been interacting with nature for a long time. And in the course of that interaction, um, we've gotten it beaten into us, into our heads, that um, theories that have a certain kind of beauty are more likely to be correct than theories that are uglier. Um, but it's a, it's, it, it's not something that can be made into a rule. Sure, we okay. can't, uh, we can't give uh, numerical values to the beauty of a theory. Um, heading back to the ancient Greeks just briefly again, why do you think they were able to produce so much important work? Well, not all of them were. There was a, the period that many people think of as the golden age of ancient Greece, uh, the Hellenic period when Athens was at the uh, center of intellectual life, was not very productive scientifically. They made some qualitative advances. For instance, Aristotle gave a very nice argument for why the Earth is a sphere. Uh, but the kind of detailed mathematical confrontation of theory and observation that we associate with modern physics and astronomy simply didn't exist then. It began to exist in the Hellenistic period, when the center of Greek thought moved from Athens to Alexandria and the Greek city-states lost their independence uh, and became absorbed into large empires, first the Hellenistic kingdoms and then the Roman Empire. I don't know why the change happened then. Uh, Greek society, the Greek thought, not just in science but in general, took a less aristocratic tone. Uh, people who did science, like a hero of Alexandria and Archimedes and Syracuse, were concerned also with practical applications, which uh, Plato scorned. Um, there was somehow or other a precocious dawn of a kind of modernity in the Hellenistic age that... Also, they became much less religious. Um, the religiosity that you find in Plato, uh, which is largely gone with Aristotle, seems to be completely gone when you get to uh, the great Hellenistics leading up to Ptolemy. So um, I don't know why all these changes happened, but I'm not discouraged by that because I also don't know why the scientific revolution happened when, it, when and where it did in Europe in the, 17th and, in the 16th and 17th centuries. 
I mean, heading from a period that's often associated with scientific thought into one that isn't, how far did the Middle Ages set the ground for the coming revolution in science? The Middle Ages certainly provided an institutional framework. The um, the, the great universities, uh, play, uh, Copernicus was educated at uh, several universities uh, in Italy. Galileo taught at a university, Padua, and then he was a professor, although he didn't teach at Pisa. Uh, Newton was always associated with the University of Cambridge. These universities were offshoots of the cathedral schools that had um, began a kind of intellectual revolution in the 11th century in Europe. Uh, cathedral schools at places like Chartres and Paris and so on, some of which, like the one at Paris, turned into a university. Others did not. Um, they kept alive the idea of a rational universe governed by law. And in particular, when Aristotle, who was banned for a while uh, by Christian authorities in the Middle Ages, when Aristotle's teaching uh, became firmly fixed in the academic curriculum, the idea of a rational, understandable world uh, be became dominant in European thought. But it wasn't a scientific uh, world. It, the, um, no one in the Middle Ages really had anything like our modern conception of science, and they made very little progress toward actual scientific knowledge. Uh, there was a qualitative theory of the rainbow, for instance, developed by Dietrich von Freiburg, uh, but nothing like the quantitative theory that was later developed by René Descartes. Uh, there were arguments about the possible m movement of the Earth, uh, which in the end didn't really lead to anything like the Copernican theory. The Middle Ages is not an intellectual desert, uh, but it's not a, um, a period that resembles either the Hellenistic Age that went before or the scientific revolution that came after. Um, we should talk a bit about the contribution of Islamic um, thinkers. What kind of role did they have in this story? Uh, after the uh, decline of the Roman Empire in the West, uh, science became almost, ab I would say, ineffective and largely absent in the Greek half of the Roman Empire, which survived until 1453. You, you find no scientific work, at least I'm not aware of any scientific work, during about a thousand years of the Byzantine Empire. During that period, uh, science was kept alive in the world of Islam, uh, first in the form of translations of the great accomplishments of the Greek, and then uh, almost at the same time in original work, which built on and improved what the, what the Hellenistic and Roman Greeks had done. Uh, some of it was very impressive. I think of the work of Al-Haytam in... Um, optics, who for the first time understood why light, light is bent when it goes, for example, from air into water. Um, it, it's a very impressive period. Uh, however, although Islamic science in one form or another continued for a few centuries, the golden age of Islamic science was really pretty much over by 1100. 
if you list the great names of Islamic science, they're all before 1100. And uh, it's an endlessly interesting question why that's true. It may have something to do with the appearance of a more, uh, a fiercer version of Islam. That is, for example, um, Spain was taken over by uh, people from North Africa who formed a caliphate, the Almohad Caliphate, that was extremely repressive and required a Jew like Moses Maimonides to flee Spain, where uh, he his parents had lived very happily and move all the way across the Mediterranean to Egypt. Um, there were episodes where books were burned, books of scientific or medical uh, technique were burned uh, by Islamic authorities. Uh, so, and there is a great figure, uh, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, who actually argued explicitly against science uh, as a distraction from, is from Islam. Um, it's, it's an interesting question how important that was. Had Islamic science simply run out of steam or was it somehow suppressed uh, by changes in Islam? I don't know the answer, uh, but it's a similar question to the question about Greek science. Did Greek science around the year 400 or 500 AD simply run out of steam or was it suppressed by the adoption of Christianity? I think there are good arguments on both sides of both questions. What factors do you think contributed to the progress of the 16th and 17th centuries then? The, uh, the previous century, the 15th century, was a time of, of radical change. Um, one of the most radical that affected intellectual life was the advent of printing with movable type. That really made scientific communication possible. Um, the discovery of America showed Europeans that there was more to the world than the ancients had known. The Renaissance uh, increased the educated public's interest in the natural world. And it also gave us higher standards for the use of ancient texts. The fall of Constantinople ended this long thousand year period in which no science was being done and had Greek scholars fleeing the Turks, winding up in Italy and other places in Europe, bringing with them texts from the golden age of Greek science in the Hellenistic and Roman periods. All sorts of things happened. Uh, France and England became, uh, so became uh, co consolidated in the reigns of oh, Louis XI and Charles VII in France and Henry VII and Henry VIII in England. Um, Europe began to be more peaceful and prosperous, although there still were significant wars. You didn't have anything like the endless drain of the Hundred Years' War, which went from the mid-14th to the mid-15th century. Um, the ground became prepared for intellectual advance, but that doesn't explain it. That doesn't explain why a Copernicus and a Galileo and a Newton came along. Um, 
you might say that, well, these laws were there to be discovered. Someone had to be the first to discover them. And these great men of the scientific revolution had the good luck to be the ones who discovered them. On that subject, are there any personalities that particularly stood out for you or heroes that you think need more recognition? Ah, well, um, Newton certainly doesn't need more recognition, <laughs> and he has a pretty repulsive personality. <laughs> so I, uh, I'm certainly not going to mention him. I think one, th- you know, if you if that question is understood in the sense of who would you like to have a beer with, I think uh, one of the ones is Christian Huygens, a Dutch uh, polymath uh, who had done an enormous variety of of this and that. He discovered the rings of Saturn. He discovered the formula for centrifugal force. He he invented the pendulum clock. I could go on and on about Huygens. But what particularly stands out for me is he very explicitly understood the relation between science and mathematics in a way that had been always muddled before. Uh, before Huygens and, well, perhaps a few other people at around the same time, uh, there's been a, a a large body of thought felt that science was a branch of mathematics and that its truths could be determined by purely mathematical reasoning. This goes way back to Plato, who thought in order to do astronomy, it wasn't necessary to look at the sky. Pure reason was all you needed. Um, Huygens specifically said, when you read my work, it will not look like a book of geometry, because the assumptions we make, we make only because we intend to work out their consequences and see if they agree with observation. And if they don't agree with observation, we will abandon them. This is this attitude is one you just don't find very much before. Are there any popular misconceptions about science and its history that you'd like this book to change, perhaps? Well, uh, there's one misconception that um, is, I wouldn't know if I should call it popular, but has been foisted on us by a generation of philosophers uh, of science. And that is uh, the idea of Thomas Kuhn, that uh, science undergoes discontinuous changes, um, after which it is even not possible to understand the science of a former age. I think that's simply wrong. I think uh, at every great change in physics, even though you can marvel about the importance of the change, you see the roots of that change in what went before, and you don't forget what went before. And in fact, you see the new theory as an improvement over the old theory, not an abandonment of the old theory. A classic example of this misconception is that when Einstein... um, when Einstein's prediction of the deflection of light by the sun was verified by some expeditions to uh, observe eclipses, the Times in London had a headline saying, Newton proved wrong. And it's simply not true. In fact, rather the opposite, Einstein's theory explains why Newton's theory works as a good approximation when it does work. Um, We build on the past. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the writing of science is legitimately different from, say, art history or even political history. We can't say with with confidence that um, 
the Impressionists were right to abandon the photographic realism of the Romantic period, or that um, uh, the, the Norman conquest was a good thing. Uh, that kind of judgment is silly when you talk about the history of art or, or political history. On the other hand, we can certainly say Newton was right and, and Descartes was wrong about, the for, about what keeps the planets going around the sun. And Copernicus was right and Ptolemy was wrong about what goes around what in the solar system. There is a definite sense of discovering right and wrong in science that doesn't exist so much in other areas. And um, I, I think that's another point, that science is not just an expression of a cultural milieu, as some historians have argued, and some sociologists of science have, have argued. Science is the discovery of truths that are out there to be discovered. So studying the history of science can help us stop making the same mistakes as the past has. Yes, I'm afraid I once was uh, crass enough to say that the study of the history of science is the best antidote to the philosophy of science. That was Stephen Weinberg. To Explain the World, The Discovery of Modern Science is out now, published by Alan Lane in the UK and Harper in the US. And you can read more from the interview with Matt and Stephen in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. This month's edition also contains articles on Richard the Lionheart, Saladin, the court of Elizabeth I and Gallipoli, among other things. You can get hold of it in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A search for the lost abbey and sarcophagus of King Henry I is being planned in Reading. The project, backed by Philippa Langley, who helped find the remains of Richard III in Leicester, will see ground-penetrating radar research of the Reading Abbey area carried out later this year. Langley believes Henry I's bones are buried near the ruins of the abbey, which was founded by the king in 1121, and where he was buried. Henry was the son of William the Conqueror, hence his reputation as a forgotten king overshadowed by his father. BBC News reports there is speculation about where Henry's remains ended up after grave robbers raided the area for the silver coffin the king had reportedly been buried in. But project co-founder and historian John Mullinay said, We know he's there in some form or another, because if people did discover these bones, they would have been left there. In other news, a 4,000-year-old Egyptian statue that was sold by a council to an overseas buyer for nearly £16 million has been banned from leaving Britain. The 30-inch limestone figure is named Sekemka, who was a royal chief, judge and administrator. 
the statue, which features him reading a scroll surrounded by his wife, son and seven offering bearings, was sold by Northampton Borough Council for £15.76 million last year to an unidentified buyer abroad. But Culture Minister Ed Vasey has ordered a four-month export ban on the relic leaving the British Isles following a recommendation by the Reviewing Committee on the Export of Works of Art and Objects of Cultural Interest, which is administered by Arts Council England. The RCEWA said the statue was of, quote, outstanding aesthetic importance and was significant in the study of, quote, the development of private statuary and funerary religion in Egypt and the history of human self-representation. In a statement, the Department for Media, Culture and Sport said the licence application for the statue will be deferred until the 29th of July, but that this may be extended until the 29th of March 2016 if a, quote, serious intention is made to raise the funds to buy it. Meanwhile, the Dean of Leicester has described his sadness at discovering that copies of the orders of the service from Richard III's reburial were being sold for up to £300 on eBay. According to The Guardian, some of the specially printed card booklets from the week of ceremonies were being offered on the auction site on Monday at more than 20 times what the church was selling them for. The Dean, David Monteith, said it was sad that people were trying to cash in on the event. He said... We've noticed that service booklets from the cathedral services are being sold for extortionate prices on eBay, presumably by those who attended the services. This is very sad. Many would have welcomed being there and keeping this as a souvenir. An estimated 35,000 people queued to see the coffin at Leicester Cathedral last week. Cathedral staff went to great lengths to ensure the reburial service, which would broadcast live by Channel 4, was a solemn occasion of, quote, dignity and honour. Thanks for that, Emma. Our second interview this week is with the actor and TV presenter David Suchet, who is perhaps best known for portraying the Agatha Christie detective Hercule Poirot. This weekend on BBC One, he will be presenting In the Footsteps of St Peter, a two-part documentary series that investigates the life of one of the key figures in the history of Christianity. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to David a couple of weeks ago to discover more about the series. What do you actually know about St Peter um, and his life? Well, I suppose what I knew about Peter and his life before I did the programme was what I suppose most people really know, which is uh, he was one of the... 12 apostles, um, and he was the one that denied knowing Jesus when he was asked uh, whether he was part of uh, the followers of Jesus when Jesus was on trial. Uh, We know that he denied him. We know that he's a fisherman. We know that he was uh, involved in the big miracle of catching fish when Jesus said, you know, fish from the other side of the boat. But what, what do we really know about Peter in great depth, except, of course, the knowledge that the Vatican in Rome is called St. Peter's. But I didn't know that much more, apart from my appetite being very whetted by the character I was beginning to discover when I did In the Footsteps of St. Paul, which was a couple of years back now, and was given the opportunity to make the film that we're going to be watching over Easter, In the Footsteps of St. Peter. And what I discovered about Peter was um, was really, for me, uh, very fascinating from the point of view as an actor looking for a character, 
but uh, and in historical terms, finding the uh, a man who became the leader of the apostles and the big second arm of the movement of Christianity outside of Israel. And so, so, so what sort of man did you discover during during filming? Well, I met a fascinating man that I got to like more and more with every single day that, uh, that I was trying to find out about him. And I met a man who was a you know, really tough outdoor man. He was a fisherman. He had a very good fishing business in those days. He wasn't a poor man. He had quite a good successful fishing business with his friends James and John and his brother Andrew. And um, I met a man who left everything, even his wife and mother-in-law and possible children. We don't know exactly how many children. Rumour has it that he had a daughter called Petronella. Um, to follow this preacher, Jesus, who really um, Peter discovered was uh, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah that everybody had been waiting for. And Peter, like the rest of the apostles, couldn't really get it together because they were expecting a, a, a saviour for the whole Jewish race against persecution of the Romans and all the rest of it. And here was um, a gentle man leading them and teaching them uh, a, a radical teaching that they've never heard before and they were trying to find their way. The thing about Peter amongst every other apostle, is that he became the closest to Jesus in terms of friendship and familiarity. Uh, he had more, seemingly, more faith than, than, than any of them. And he's the one that confessed that to Jesus' face that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. So his faith was unshakable, although he had doubts. But what kept happening with Peter dear Peter, was that the more he tried, the more he sort of got it wrong as well. <laughs> so, so he he gives, he was, a, I think he's possibly one of the most human of all the apostles. And, you know, we take off the, um, the sainthood of St. Peter and we find a, a very normal, possibly illiterate man, an outdoors man in, in, in northern Israel, who just becomes the the leader of the apostles after Jesus dies. Jesus hands over the office to him. I mean, that's quite an incredible journey. I mean, how do you think he made that move from, you know, simple fisherman to, to essentially the, the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, it's an extraordinary movement for any individual and is possibly one of the, you know, by his very office, uh, moving towards that, as you say, the first bishop of Rome. The big change in Peter happened on the day of Pentecost, which is recorded in, in the Acts of the Apostles very early on, when um, the Holy Spirit visited them. And we hear about the famous tongues of fire. Um, and you can see um, icons of the 12 apostles, all with little tongues of fire on the top of their head. But they were visited by the Holy Spirit. They were enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And and suddenly we see a more mature man as a result of this experience. And he comes out and speaks to multi-nations in Jerusalem. And in one sermon, it's recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, in one sermon, 3,000 people are converted. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement. And it's, and it's written there and it's, it actually happened. And the other thing that Peter did was as much as Paul went out to the Gentiles, i.e. the non-Jews, Peter was given the task of going to the Jews to evangelize and to change and to become followers of this 
small Jewish sect that was developing. And he went out, and in a very short time, Peter himself, um, after this conversion of the Jews, he was with Samaritans when they received the Holy Spirit, so he was there for that conversion. And then his first male convert was Cornelius, a Roman centurion. So almost the, he has a trio of success that would take um, this faith uh, into Europe. Yeah. I mean, from, you know, during filming, did you get a sense of, of the world in which... Um Peter lived in, you know, from talking to the historians and experts. Yeah, I did get a sense of the world, and that's that was the joy of going to Israel. And the, the more I do these programmes, the more that I did in the footsteps of St Paul, in the footsteps of St Peter, I'm constantly reminded and moved away from the fact that Christianity is a Middle Eastern faith. And it's a it's an offshoot of the Jewish religion, and it's rooted in that. Um, and that, to me, is a very exciting thing because the, we have more in common with Judaism uh, than we would possibly like to think. We're absolutely uh, out of the same roots, and that's uh, very exciting to be in Israel, to see where Peter grew up, to see where he was born, to see where he lived, to see where he worked, and to see where he followed Christ. Mm. I mean, did you discover anything else surprising you know, during your journey? Well, I was surprised at his intimacy with Jesus. I, I forgot the fact that Jesus actually met with Peter as the first apostle after his resurrection. I don't think that's a fact that's well remembered. We don't know much about the meeting, except that it's just mentioned in one sentence in, 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 in the Acts of the Apostles, I think, is, or is it in one of the Gospels? I can't remember now. But it's just one simple sentence. But that's huge in its own right. The fact that Jesus chose to meet Peter above every everybody first uh, uh, of the apostles that that was one thing the other thing is that what peter gives to me and gives to everybody of every faith however much we strive to get it right he gives us permission to, to fail and that's very important mm. i mean if you could meet peter um, you know is there anything you'd like to ask him Oh, I'd love to ask him, yes. I'd like to ask him all, so many questions. I'd like to ask him about his family, of course. I'd like to ask about the effect of Jesus on his life. But more than anything, I think I'd like to ask him about his dearest friend, Jesus. Are there any other sources that you came across um, that, that give us information about Peter, you know, the, the person? I read a lot of books, and I haven't got their titles in front of me at the moment, but I read a lot of books about St. Peter including the book The Bones of Peter, which which um, is a justification of the bones under the Vatican be belonging to, to St. Peter. Um, I was surprised that there was not much evidence for him ever going to Rome. That did come as a bit of a shock. Um, and it's really based on tradition. And one quote from the Bible uh, that we have, that we read, that um, he he refers to churches here, in other words, where he was present in Babylon, and Babylon was a code word for Rome. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise, um, because the the whole Pope issue, uh, and, and him being the first Bishop of Rome, or the first Pope of Rome, I'm not quite sure how that fits in if we haven't haven't got much more proof. But that's, you know, that's historic, and we, and we can't prove it. But we do have tradition, and tradition is very important. And how influential do you think he was to later popes? And do you think people, they try to model themselves on him? Um, I don't know if Peter's personality 
was actually influential on many of the popes. Um, we don't know much about the early, early popes. We know there was rifts within the church, and we know that uh, the, the pope himself had enormous power. Certainly, that wasn't the character of Peter. Peter was a leader, but he wasn't. He he was he didn't wield power. Um, so I don't know about the early popes and the personality of Peter. Peter was a flawed, wonderfully flawed man, um, who was a, a possibly an illiterate fisherman, um, and that's what we know about him. Um, in the series, you, you look at um, his portrayals of Peter through art. Um, do any did any of those um, representations sort of strike you? Do they sort of resonate with you at all? Uh, yes, very, very much. I'm just looking in my book in my bag here because I've brought two pictures with me that have stayed with me and 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 of course the main one for me is the Caravaggio which is uh, Peter being crucified and being pulled up upside down with him gazing uh, with an am amazing look in his eyes at a, a nail uh, that was going through his hand and the other unbelievable picture is by Rembrandt um, of St. Peter in prison, where he's on his knees holding his hands together and his face is that of an old man with such sadness and a whimsical look. The, the artwork surrounding this man is always... There's one Michelangelo portrait of him being very angry, but, but the other ones are always uh, sort of quizzical and very sad, almost reflective, looking back over his life, wondering if he could have done so much better. And I don't think he ever got over the fact that he denied three times knowing his very best friend. And yet he did go on, though, to, you know, just to spread the word. He went on to spread the word. He went on to be the leader of the apostles. Paul was never the leader of the apostles. It was Peter, and he was taken over by James. Paul was a, was a fantastic powerhouse, but he was never, although he calls himself the, the last of the apostles, he never knew Jesus, and that's where Peter has the upper hand. <laughs> um, I mean, you've mentioned that, you, you know, filming took you all over the world, really. I mean, were there any particular highlights for you? Yes, the dark cave in Cappadocia, um, the the... the, the, the the rock-cut cave churches that where the early Christians managed to worship and they put frescoes up and just unbelievable, really, really unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of finally, how important as a historical figure do you think, think Peter is? I think Peter is enormously important as a historical figure because without him, the word of Christianity would never have spread so far. Peter was... Um, very vital in our history and in our consequential Western civilization thought because he brought that struggling little movement into the, the Jewish nation and converted many Jews to Christianity. And, and, and obviously that was the seedbed for Europe as well. So what was his appeal, do you think, to people? I think his appeal to people was, was the fact that he continually managed to get things slightly wrong. <laughs> and as I said before, he gives us all the right to fail, knowing that we will be accepted and still loved for it. That was David Suchet. In the Footsteps of St Peter will be shown on BBC One at 9am on Friday the 3rd of April and then the second part on Sunday the 5th of April. 
Okay, so that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about Saladin and suffragettes. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.